0: Imagine a world where healthcare data isn't locked away in silos, but we can use it for something good. It sounds great in theory, but how do we clean up all this critical data to do something meaningful with it without wasting months or possibly years of resources or compromising on security and privacy? With me today on the show are Greg Miner and Guy Safna from Evidently. And in this episode, we talk about the differences between data federation and data aggregation and why it matters. What are the key elements needed to make data federation a reality and how data federation is shaping global initiatives in healthcare and what's on the horizon. Collaboration starts with a conversation, Team HealthTech, Let's make it up. This is Talking Health Tech with me, Peter Birch, featuring content and community about technology in healthcare. Between now and the end of June, we're conducting the 2024 Talking Health Tech Audience Survey. This helps us prioritize content, hone in key messages, and refine the show to make it even better. We also want to understand who the biggest cohorts of our audience are. So I'd love for you to take 5 or 10 minutes to have your say and complete the survey. Everyone who completes it goes in the draw to win a share of $1,000 worth of THT Plus Membership Credits to put towards a membership for yourself as an individual, or to help get the word out about your company. The link to complete the survey is in the show notes of this episode, or just go to talkinghealthtech.com survey. So Jens, how
1: are you going? Good. 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 Thanks for coming by.
2: Yeah, thanks for setting us up in this nice room allowing me to come over and have a chat about Evidently. Maybe let's kick us off. Firstly, introduce yourselves and what you do within the organization, then we can go a bit more about what Evidently is. Did you want to start?
3: Yeah, okay, my name's Guy. I'm a technical founder at Evidently. Evidently is based on the research that I've been doing since 2006 at UNSW and Macquarie. 2018, we've started to look outside the university that is their interest in this technology and what we were working on. <laughs> and there was, so in 2019, we decided to take this to the market. Greg and sort of the commercial arm of the company yeah. Make, to make it a company yeah from then you want to
1: so hi greg co-founder and ceo and i look after the boring business side of the the company yes yeah, so i met guy in 2018 and he's had this really interesting piece of technology that i thought was pretty amazing and guy was saying he wanted to turn it into a company and we got to know each other and decided to and as it turns out we have a common friend that i did my master's with and he's a guy's childhood friend so there's some kind of history there that we weren't even aware about when we started the company yeah we kind of went from there so it's been a pretty fun time since then
2: yeah well should we go a little bit more about what the technology is or did you want to give a bit more context about
1: the journey leading up what makes more sense because we've mentioned this interesting technology why don't we explain what that is and then kind of talk to you a bit about about how we got to where we are today so i'll probably start with it and then for the real tech people i can pitch in They're really techie (laughs) audience members that want to really understand how it works so you can think about what we do is it's kind of a next generation data platform so we have a whole bunch of artificial intelligence and not just one algorithm that's been trained but there's dozens of them that can take the really messy clinical data including the unstructured and uncoded data that exists in clinical systems and turn it into omop and we can do this really quickly and with really high accuracy so, we guarantee 99% precision, meaning 99% accuracy with AI. AI. The lowest we've ever seen is 99.7. We're 50 to 100 times faster than it would be today. So, if you were to try to turn all of a hospital's data, let's say a single hospital, into OMOP, so you can start to, and OMOP allows you to query it and structure it and analyze it and things like that. That would be a multi year journey. And with us, it would be a multi week journey.
2: And for those that are keeping score or interested, OMOP, I know exists within the Talking Health Tech Glossary okay. of Terms on the okay. website. But for those that are listening in or watching, what's OMOP again?
1: OMOP is the open way to represent data. So if you think about fire as a message, it's the envelope. OMOP is in what side? It, it is in what's inside the envelope. So it's the open standard to represent clinical data. Yeah. Cool. Whereas fire is the open standard that's a message.
2: Yeah. You mentioned it would take a. It would be a multi year journey in in the way it's done before, how is it possible to have such a vast difference? Like, well, how was it done before? And like, you mentioned AI gets involved
1: in the technology. Well, it was done for firstly by transforming coded data, which is the easy part. And even that would be a several month process typically. And then the hard part is the unstructured data. So you would need to have someone go in and read each cell and then understand, or each term or each piece of text and understand what that meant within the context of the patient record and then code it appropriately.
0: Because
2: unstructured data is just people writing stuff in fields where they're not supposed to. Yeah, that, that,
1: that, well, oh no, they are supposed to, right. to be honest with you, because EMRs are designed for clinicians to get a view of the patient's history in a way that's easily consumable for them. And they're designed to be customized and configured, so each hospital, each ward, each unit has their own view, because they look at their patients in their own unique way. And so that has historically, and still does, and makes a lot of sense, allows them to type. And it allows them to type a sentence, maybe two, to describe something that's actually really clinically important, or a couple of things. Mm. The problem is that turning that sentence into stuff that's actually usable and queryable has, up until today, been really hard. And Guy and Enrico and the team at the Institute and the Center developed this technology that's just extraordinary.
2: Well, maybe that might be a good segue into diving in that next layer about the technology and what's involved there, Guy.
3: When we first started to look into actual data in 2010, into actual patient data, we noticed that there's a lot of data that's missing, a lot of data that's misrepresented in how it's done, a lot of shorthand, a lot of almost like secret code that doctors use. The work we had to do to really make sense of it was enormous. I'm the kind of person does something three th- three times at most, and if it's more than three times, I automate it. So we started to look at how to automate this. What came out was actually quite. Impressive at the time, even, and we've been developing it further for a broader range of data. What we noticed initially trying to use the state of the art of machine learning that was at the time, machine learning can get it quite well, right? Mm -hmm. Quite well. But what any machine learner will tell you is, to get to seventy percent, you just throw some data at a machine learning, you get seventy percent accuracy. Mm -hmm. It's done. You work on this for a year, you get to maybe eighty percent, and then you work on it for another year, you're getting to 81 percent, it just doesn't get there and these are not numbers that are good enough for medicine mm. quite honestly. so we needed to take a different approach the time when we started to look at okay the problem is that we're trying to use this the same machine learning algorithm to resolve diagnoses right mm-hmm. and that didn't make sense to us so we started to divide that into smaller chunks and then Every department in every hospital has its own way of writing things. And so smaller things again, smaller data sets again, until we got to the point where it was, okay, how many data sets are they going to be here? And now we need to automate that. So we started to automate the segmentation and then choosing the right machine learning and training the right machine learning for that segment of the data. That creates, in a typical, say, something like an LHD or HHS, mm-hmm. This would be thousands of segments of data that come from different hospitals and different systems. And so that becomes unmanageable to do manually. And so the automation of this entire process allows us to build a thousand machine learning algorithms specific for each customer. That's right. And that's what gets us that precision. And like Greg said, we guarantee 99%, but we've never really seen it in a real data set. Mm. Uh, we've seen it only much higher. People, again, uh, this is based on the literature, but people will do this at between 80% and
2: 94, 96%. Uh, like uh, if you, if a human did it, then yeah, that's right.
3: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and we do it at 99%, so it might sound like a couple more percent. What's the big deal? It's actually the difference between 94% and uh, 99% six times better. It's 160 errors compared to that. So if we make a prediction about a particular scribble yeah. that is, say, a drug name, then there's a 99% chance probability that it's correct. Because when people do it, it's 1 in 5 to, say, 1 in 7. If it's 1 in 7, it's not good enough. This is where this not good enough notion comes in. If it's yeah. 1 in 7, you have to manually verify. You don't. You can't trust the yeah. The, uh,
2: and we have a much... Lower tolerance for any errors in technology compared to a human making?
3: I think in generally medicine, evidence based medicine is built on small increments. We don't need evidence to show us that it's better to jump off a plane with a parachute than it is in doubt. You don't need an experiment to show you that. Mm. But we sometimes do need to see that the latest drug is maybe a little bit better than the old one and mm. it's worth doing, it's worth using. It's this low increments that are defining or at least staples of evidence-based medicine. To do that, that's to see those little effects, this is where you need this high precision.
1: Uh, A way to maybe describe how this stuff works in common terms is generative AI has just taken off, right? And everyone really understands what they are. What it is, actually, we do have generative AI and it's almost kind of next generation, if you think. So generative AI today, LLMs and the such, create either software code or language. Um, Essentially, that's what it generates. Mm -hmm. Our AI generates more AI. So, if that makes sense, so our AI, we have a bunch of governing algorithms that look at something and say, "Okay, this is the best way to approach it." Let's go create a bunch of machine learning models, and then we build models on the fly and learn from data as it as you present it to us.
2: If I was a hospital executive, would I know that this thing exists? Like, how does it? Like, uh, this sounds very useful and clever and everything, but then. I guess that's where you come in, like to be able to take the technology, this really clever technology, but actually make it usable in a hospital setting and commercial. and all that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, so I mean, right now we're just, we kind of began our go-to-market in earnest about nine to 12 months ago. COVID clearly slowed things down because no one was going to go out and buy stuff from a little startup, regardless of how cool it sounded. And people weren't really focused on analytics at that point anyway. Yeah. So how is it, how are we expanding? Mostly through word of mouth, just through kind of networking and people we know. We're, that's starting to accelerate a fair bit. Yeah, market has arrived, right? Which is why I guess what we're talking about today, which is federated data, right? So that's federated data requires a common standardized data set.
2: I want to talk about federated data in a second, but you mentioned the people that you know, and I think that it's worth calling out that you look on your website at the advisory board and the people you've worked with. It's some pretty well-established and well-known
1: yeah, people yeah. within this space in Australia. So Enrico Cuero is one of our founders. Yeah. Um, Graham Greve is on the team. Paul Galazio, who's one of the co-inventors of evidence-based medicine. Louis Shaper's on the team. And then globally, Ken Mandel, who runs the computational health informatics program at Harvard's on the team. Blackford Middleton, where you built all the world's first EHRs and kind of was the chair of HIMS and yeah. CMIO at Harvard System, and taught it all over the place. And then Devera Gabriel, and she's probably... Tavares, great. She's one of the world's leading clinical terminologists. So she did a lot of the work behind the rollout of ICD-11, and she runs terminology management for Johns Hopkins.
2: So if it's going to happen, it's got to be Richard
1: Harris basically. Well, yeah. I mean, so kind of that's Guy and Enrico's kind of n- networks there, right? They've been in the space for 20 years, yeah, working in the guts of health informatics and health data. As a mm. result, they build all these relationships. And then we say, hey, we're going to try to turn this thing into something real, and everyone pops on board, which is really nice. Yeah.
0: The Talking Health Tech podcast has evolved a lot over the years all based on audience feedback. Now I need your help, yes you, to shape the future of this show. Between now and the end of June, we're running our biggest campaign to date in order to understand what makes the global healthcare ecosystem tick. Last time we ran our Talking Health Tech audience survey, we learnt 40% of our audience are clinicians, 77% of our audience tune in for professional development and market awareness, 8% of people listen to Talking Health Tech for competitor profiling, and only 2% of people listen to the podcast to fall asleep. And this time around, I can't wait to find out about your preferences for audio versus video content, which topics we should dive into more, preferences for hosts and formats and geographical reach and so much more. And don't worry, we'll be sharing all the insights once all the responses are collected as well. So if you're a supporter of Talking Health Tech and you can spare five or ten minutes, please complete our 2024 audience survey. And to say thanks for your input, everyone who completes the survey goes into the draw to win a share of $1,000 worth of credits towards THT Plus membership. Go to talkinghealthtech.com survey or the links in the show notes of this episode as well.
2: So this point around federation and federated data, tell me a little bit more about what that is and how that kind of works. The importance of (laughs) water.
3: The main thing is that we, when we think about medical data, and this is pretty intuitive, that to think about privacy and to think about protecting patients' privacy and not leaking information and that sort of thing, and then Mm -hmm. that's not a new thing. That's been around. There are different jurisdictions with different laws that govern this, cultural and just conventions and. These are sometimes hard to navigate, especially if you're trying to move data from one jurisdiction to another, then you have to comply with all kinds of rules that might have contradictions in them sometimes. What people do is called federation, which is that they do a smaller version of a study in, in one location, take the results of that study, and the mm. results from several other locations like that, and put those results together so that it's as if they have, without transferring any data across, there's a bigger population that's being studied. This process is actually lossy. So there's, you lose the precision that's important there. Compared to how you would do it to maximize precision, which is to take all the data, put it in one place, and then analyze it. Like, that Mm. that gives it the right, that gives it the best we can do. When we do a federated study, we normally can't really get to that precision. We actually uh, recently filed a patent that allows us to do just that, to actually, without transferring data to get the same results we would have had if the data was all in one place, this will be a big changer now that a lot of people actually, I think one good thing that came out of the pandemic for us is that there's a lot of awareness. A lot of people want to study larger populations. Mm. There's a lot more awareness that federation is required. It's not just convenient. Mm
2: -hmm. Yes. Because people talk about that all the time
3: too, especially when you're
2: talking from my non-technical experience, but a common comment around artificial intelligence is a concern around bias and ensuring that it's appropriate because if, like from a clinical point of view, if you're taking a sample size, from my own experience in the skin cancer side, taking- a bunch of images of Australians, you're going to then create an algorithm that works very well for those that live living in Australia compared to then apply it to Africa. It's obviously very different. But then the concept of federation, how do you then take into consideration all these extra kind of bits and pieces that allow, if you're extrapolating from one part, to actually make it applicable?
3: That's actually the advantage of federation is why you do it to increase the population. As you increase mm-hmm. the population, the bias goes down. You get closer and closer to the sort of the truth. Being concerned about bias in machine learning is a little bit like being scared of telescopes because you can see meteorites in them right so <laughs> they show us the biases that have already been there they're not creating bias they reflected to us mm. the bias that was already there so they learn the biases from us the biases exist in the system mm. we can now see them it's not that the machine learning we might have put some responsibility on the machine learning, and now it enacts some sort of, there's no judgment, no human judgment involved in that process, and that's a problem, I agree. Mm -hmm. But the biases were not created by the machine learning. They were learned. If you have more data that's more representative from multiple locations, that's actually reducing
1: bias. One of the interesting kind of benefits to broadly federated learning and analytics outside of AI is the idea that you can localize evidence now. So right now, studies are done in the United States and they're based on a data set in the United States that says, I don't know, this much all is required for some guy with hypertension and type 2 diabetes to post-surgery to post surgery to alleviate pain or something like that. That study was done in that population. Those methods are reviewed, and those methods are accepted as good, and so the result is accepted as correct. But if you, have, if you can federate, you can apply that same method to a different patient population. And actually, what matters are the methods, not the answer. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So suddenly all of the biases inherent in that population go away because you're applying those methods to a different... And it, the answer could be different. The answer could be, well, it's a lower dose or higher dose of all for this patient population. Mm. And that's the type of thing that Federation will allow us to do over time.
2: Yeah. I'm reflecting on it and I can tell that you guys think about this stuff more than yeah, I do, which <laughs> <yeah>, is <yeah, yeah. laughs> scratching the surface here. And I'm also thinking too, how you've mentioned a couple of times, there's for evidently, you've got some of your team members and advisory board are... Based in different parts of the world too, and we we're talking before about how you guys are on twenty four seven because you're speaking to the US all the time and other parts. So this is obviously a global opportunity to solve here, not yeah. to, from a bunch of Australians as well. Talk to me more about the global the needs globally when it comes to.
1: The idea of federation has been around for a while. Australia is probably a little bit behind in terms of its adoption, and there's a bunch of reasons for that. So the NHS just went to market for a national federated data platform. And they also have a national trusted research environment, which will be federated as well, meaning they need to standardize on a common data model across the entire country's data set. This is of great interest in the United States amongst academic medical centers. There are kind of research and learning communities being formed as we speak that really are coalescing around a common data model so they can share and swap information or share and swap studies between them and do research collaborations in real time. Mm. Whereas before these things took years and now they can do it very, they can do it much faster. Now, there, a lot of technology and software needs to be developed to facilitate these interactions. But the acknowledgement that it's possible and it's the next wave of kind of building the learning health system mm. and allowing the health system to learn at pace. It is really interesting because when you talk to, some academics that have been thinking about this for a long time, this wave of knowledge that's going to be unleashed by this type of network, they liken that to the the impact of that, they liken that to the same impact that antibiotics and pharmaceuticals had on healthcare. All right, that's going to be the next big revolutionary thing is how do we actually unlock this knowledge that's latent in the health system and then apply it at scale?
2: Well, yeah, to that too. Like, everything goes well, and then we speed up the process to convert to OMOP and do this. For what outcome then, like what's the benefit of all of this to spell out, we get all this right, what happens?
1: Yeah, so to remember at scale and to be able to apply these learnings. So to innovate quickly, to go from 17 years to get an answer to a clinical question, how much pen at all to give this person. who yeah. generally accept an answer to 17 weeks mm. or 17 days and ensuring things are actually accepted and safe and safe for clinical practice yeah yeah
3: increasingly people are aware that there is gold in the data that they already collect people from outside of informatics normally think what data is already in a database what's the problem what do we need you for people in the industry understand that data is not usable in the form that it's being collected for clinical care that is actually a global problem for everyone that want to get at that gold but they don't have any way to do it it's not in a way that you can mine it. And so it's hard to say even, what exactly is that gold gonna do? What exactly, what new knowledge is hiding in that data? We don't know until we look, but we can't yet look. Yeah. So going backwards from that, one of the solutions was to, okay, maybe if we standardized all the data, yeah, that would make it mineable, and that's correct, and that's where a lot of standards started, interoperability, but that shifts the problem. Anyway, it's part of the solution. It's not the whole solution. Yes. You need to get the data into the standard first. And that's where we are today Is everybody's, the only solution to do this is manual. So people are either doing this manually or not at all because it's too expensive. This is where we use AI to accelerate this and really make this possible. And then unrolling this, now the data is standardized. You can do a lot of things with it. You can mine it, you can federate it, you can. Yeah you can start getting at that goal and what we're finding is that there's so much to be mined there's so much that not one company not google not apple can actually do or solve medicine because medicine is a like thousands if not millions of small problems that need to be solved mm. we're providing a platform for the community to solve these problems on their own we're not going to pretend to solve these problems ourselves we provide them the tools they need the data that they need their data we make it we give it to them in a way that they can use it. Mm. They can then mine it and own those what those discoveries. Because we talk so much about the
2: algorithm like so the ML creating additional algorithm, all this kind of thing. And you hear of different technology providers in healthcare that might do a lot of the algorithm side, but not any kind of interface for a clinician or a clinical code or anything. So is there an interface or something that like do people I'm asking the dumb questions for everyone. Do people log into evidently or is it just the magic behind the scenes? What does
1: the thing No, No, I know there's a way for clinicians and an analytic kind of low code, no code portal so they can yeah. kind of use this to create evidence or analytics really quickly. Yeah. So we, we provide kind of an end-to-end solution. So from messy data, we clean it up, mm. we govern it, and we allow you to then do analytics and then collaborate. Got it. So that's what it is we do.
3: But it's not for everyone who needs data needs to have these user interfaces mm. to make it accessible to a bigger audience. But it's not there's statisticians and developers who mm. need a more advanced. So we, we cater for them as well. A lot of stakeholders in healthcare. So there's little... yeah exactly
2: yeah, that's, right. that's yeah.
3: true yeah So then
2: what's what's the future then? Of you guys a lot to to work on and exciting problems to solve. What can we look forward to seeing from evidently over the next six twelve? 24. Well, domination. <laughs> <laughs>
3: That's what I was thinking. <laughs> we're expanding and we're reaching on Word of Math. you can only do so much, even mm-hmm. with a big network like ours. And so we're investing in more commercial infrastructure and more collaboration between people we don't know. We're building what we call an evidence hub, which is a collaboration hub for clinical data. So without sharing the data, it's sharing the methods where everybody in the public... We'll be able to look at it, scrutinize it, which is how quality of evidence is determined, not by the results, how well they match what you wanted them to be, but how objectively were they produced. And so anybody can then go and look. It's, everything is open source and, and see how people have measured. So if you've published a paper that says that, I don't know, coffee cures cancer, people can actually go and look at the methods that you use without looking at your data, run it on their data, to see is it really replicable and build up the quality of the evidence this way and so this will come up towards the end of the year and we're yeah very excited about this yeah. uh, it's gonna be very transformative
1: yeah here yeah. we have some partnerships with some large universities in the united states that are gonna work with us on how we moderate communities and build communities and communities of learning and knowledge but mm-hmm. from an open standpoint open learning and knowledge around this kind of product. yeah and it's not going to be anything we charge for, right? It's just going to be there. We want people to use it. We want to create, we want healthcare to get better. And the best way to do that is by bringing people together with similar interests and passions and helping them, putting them solve problems in an open way.
2: And you think about you solving tricky problems that require, as you said, no one organization person or anything is going to solve all the problems in healthcare. There's many stakeholders and many problems to solve. And if it's complicated, unless you have that understanding, the ability to share and ability to learn and grow, then it's not going to happen. But it sounds like you're doing a great job to make that more explainable and need that firepower behind it to get to that next level. So, Jen, I'll put the details for evidently in the show notes of this episode. People can check out what you're doing and get in touch if they're keen to learn more. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Peter.
0: Hey, thanks for sticking around to the end of this episode. If you made it this far, you're the perfect person that I want to hear from. Our THT Plus audience survey is now open until the end of June, and I personally read every submission. In fact, if you leave a comment in the survey that you heard this promotion in a podcast episode, I promise I'll reply directly to you by email with a personal note of thanks, and I'll even buy your coffee next time I see you in person. It's pretty easy. Just go to talkinghealthtech.com survey and have your say. For more content and community about technology and healthcare... Visit TalkingHealthTech.com.